1: Well, welcome back as we head into hour two. Uh, your hour six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero six zero two fifty eighty nine sixty. Let's talking a little bit about um, a veto. Uh, Governor Hobbs, Katie Hobbs, uh, issued today, stamped on legislation today, uh, vetoing law that would protect children who survive abortions. Uh, that is to say, born alive infants from abortions that didn't take. Uh, the law was to protect them and give them the same health care and protections that any other normally born child would receive, and she vetoed it. And we are talking to Doug in Maricopa, who has been patient uh, and uh, waiting patiently. Thank you, Doug. I appreciate it. You were starting to make the point uh, about Republicans who abandoned field on some of these things and some of our rhetoric and some of our strategy. But you take it wherever you want, sir.
0: Well, I'll... Try to in a couple minutes um, give a quick synopsis of a couple points, and then if you can make head nor hair of them, um, <laughs> see if we can make some of this relevant. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but I I think what we tend to do, like I said, we do one of two things, or you know, we we either give up the field, and because we don't want to get up people upset, so we don't educate. Now the liberals don't give up the field and they continue to educate and therefore their field begins to expand if they lose they keep the rhetoric up if they win they keep the rhetoric up mm. and they slowly convert they'll make fun of they'll taunt they'll they'll never back down the rhetoric continues so the percentage of people who begin to understand and see it in their perspective uh, grow. As a matter of fact, you'll begin to hear Republicans use their terminology. Yep. Bad mistake. And um, or we, if we have a slight victory, we go way so far, like the law to have capital punishment for women who have abortion, that we just lose because we haven't won the field. When in rhetoric, we stand by ourselves and look feel foolish. It's sort of like in the in the war of the, the civil war. It's what I call the picket charge. Picket's mm-hmm. charge was a foolhardy thing right into the hardest bulkhead of the Union line. Mm-hmm. And it was a slaughter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what it is in all things, I would rather as passionate as I am with a pro life movement, we have to be strategic in that we don't outstrip our our ability to teach so that we lose everything. Mm -hmm. And so there's the balance of don't give up the field, always continue to teach, which we don't, and don't outstrip our ability to be able to say we commandeer the argument. Because if we lose uh, too many elections because we haven't taught and we try to push beyond it, then we will lose so much that more babies will die. And uh, because we, if we lose elections, the left agenda will will uh, prevail, such as what the Hobbes has done, where literally they have now, she is condoning infanticide, where you have a living, breathing human being that survived an abortion and we're going to kill it because the mother wants it that way. And it's beyond belief. But um, I think. So I think we've got to balance
1: those two. I've never understood how you can have a country of two opposing parties where one party too often unilaterally and preemptively surrenders talking points, if not even adopts the yeah. talking points of the opposition. Yeah. There's no opposition in, in that. In the book I co-wrote called American Greatness, There's a chapter I call it conservative Stockholm syndrome uh, where we somehow feel captive to we we, we as captives somehow feel indebted to captives feel indebted to those who have taken us captive based on, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's the Patty Hearst incident or the Swedish bank robbery that gave Stockholm syndrome its name. We, we – there's, there's, there's about five, five ways I identified in where you can see this um, and you can see it taking places. You can see it when Republican candidates or office holders or conservative scholars or journalists seek recognition from liberal institutions or from mainstream media hosts. It can be seen when Republican candidates or office holders or scholars or journalists choose to appear on media, liberal media outlets instead of conservative outlets. We see a lot of that. It can be seen when Republican candidates and the like deliberately and actively try to appease or win over liberal audiences on deliberately liberal or left wing television shows, particularly hosted by comedians. And you can see it when candidates and scholars condemn fellow candidates or scholars who are conservative in front of or to the left. You know who doesn't have a Stockholm syndrome problem? The left. Yeah. Democrats. Democrats don't have a Stockholm syndrome. The Kennedy name is back in the news big time because Robert Kennedy Jr. has announced a bid for the presidency. How many How many Democrats— Molly coddled and protected (laughs) Ted Kennedy. Not over just his sexual escapades, but over manslaughter. How many of them condemned Robert Byrd as a member of the KKK? How many of them defended the depredations of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton? How many of them covered up The race baiting comments of Maxine Waters or, for that matter, even Nancy Pelosi. They don't have that problem over there. They don't. We do. And we have it on individuals and we have it on issues. There is nothing to be afraid of in this fight, Doug. Not on this issue, not on most. We can have our differences. But our differences shouldn't be. The embracement of the liberal position so much so that even though we may disagree, we refuse to say anything about it, or if asked about it, we concede the liberal position, that's not teaching. That's yeah. campaigning for the other side.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it is, that You said it so well. I mean, honest to God, like I said, if, if liberals win, they continue the rhetoric and they continue the argument. And if they lose, they never leave the field. They continue to win uh, and push, push, push. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we need to do. I've seen so many people wilt because, you know, I I, I am always shocked, continually shocked, because I assume there's so many people so much smarter than I am. What am I but a pigment pigment pusher, a painter, an artist, you <laughs> know? And and they get on camera and in in we should know the liberal argument better than they do so why they always look like they're some pencil neck geek who's been shocked they answer this they ask this question about abortion you know why do why do republicans want to you know deny women who have been raped abortion? yeah and the question should be first of all turn it around first of all that's a lie we do not but let me ask you this turn it around turn it around turn it around turn it around, turn it around. It's like they're brain dead and they have a first-grade mentality and they can't think. Turn it around and say, why do liberals? The question is not that we want to have the rape victims deny that because we don't. That's never been in a legislation, or virtually never. The question is, why do leftists like yourself, and put them in it and let them back it off and argue about it, why do leftists like yourself want to kill babies who have survived An abortion, so they are living, breathing human beings outside the womb. Why do they want them killed? And put it in that because a rape, rape abortion is probably one percent, and so bring it back to the you know put them on the defensive. We never put them on the defensive. We accept the arguments they put up. We they define it they you know put it up and then we argue within that. The other thing is I never argue abortion anymore. But someone wants to do. I said I just tell them this lady I was just talking to. I don't argue abortion. The question you and I have is: Is it life or is it not life?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That's because then they have a harder time defining it.
1: Yeah, and so and, if it and it I, I abortion, think that's a fair, I think that's a fair way to think of it. And if it and, isn't life, is it growing? Because anything growing is life. life, Anything growing is alive.
0: Yeah. 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 And and if it's not alive, how come it has a heartbeat? Yeah, why is it growing? Exactly right.
1: Exactly right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Turn the argument. Far more late-term abortions, which
1: almost every Democrat supports, far more than any abortions that come out of the awful circumstances of rape and incest. Far more. Far more. Yeah. Anyway, Doug, bless you. Thank you. Thank you, you very bet. much. I'm Seth Liebson, six zero two We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. How's the Biden administration handling the economy in your eyes, in your mind, with the banks failing and stock market volatility and possible recession coming? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? It's a portfolio where you know what each monthly statement will look like. You can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like. No loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees. This is a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. I want you to talk to my friends at Y Refi. They're based here locally. I know them well. They're trustworthy and honest. You won't get a sales pitch. y is a due diligence approved firm, and you can run up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's investyrefi.com, or give them a ring at 888-Y-REFI-34, and let them know I sent you This is circulating uh, everywhere. A uh, ProPublica story, which is uh, a government endowed story, by the way. ProPublica is a publicly funded enterprise. That's a hit job on Clarence Thomas. And it's saying um, that Clarence Thomas has a super rich friend. And uh, that super rich friend, GOP donor Harlan Crow, invites Thomas on luxury vacations from time to time at his private resort and sprawling ranch and the all-male retreat up in California. And on his super yacht, all the adjectives strongly suggestive that it's all very upscale and that these vacations virtually happen virtually every year. David Harsanyi has a good takedown of it. There indeed are a lot of incriminating pictures in the piece, even a shot of a signed book, as Harsanyi puts it, because people who do furtive, illegal, corrupt stuff always wear commemorative custom-made polo shirts of their trips and take lots of snapshots, right? Evidence indeed. The Internet has exploded with comments from the usual suspects, mischaracterizing the trips as bribes, though everything reported by ProPublica is completely legal and unrelated to Thomas's work on the court. Thomas's sin is not caring what the media or elites think of him, of course. His mortal sins are practicing and believing in originalism and bucking the racial left. It's the only reason the Washington Post keeps publishing deep dives into his wife's completely legal political activism. Clarence Thomas has zero legal obligation to disclose where he goes on vacation to journalists or anywhere else, whether they are luxury trips or not. The idea that Thomas is secretly engaging in these activities because he fails to provide the editors at the New York Times or ProPublica or anywhere else with his itinerary is beyond preposterous. The only even debatable part of the disclosures would be his failure to report private flights as transportation expenses. But a genuine piece of journalism would have investigated the practices of all justices on this front, don't you think? But the idea, as one quote-unquote expert claims in the piece, that spending time on a friend's yacht should be reported as transportation rather than vacation is nonsensical. While the purpose of Pro Publica's piece is to frame all this as unethical, it offers not a single substantive instance of anything remotely approaching a conflict of interest. No case involving Harlan Crow or crow has ever reached the Supreme Court, and there are no examples of Thomas having changed his positions to accommodate anyone. ProPublica takes an embarrassing stab at making this contention by noting that Thomas's criticism of an old Chevron-related case means that he's adopted a concept newly popular on the right that would limit government regulation. Yes, limiting government regulation is a wholly newfangled idea. Within federalist society circles, Pulitzers should be on the way. But of course, leftists can't believe anyone has a good faith position in opposition to their own. A person can either be bought by nefarious moneymen, misled by nefarious moneymen, or be nefarious themselves. Those are the choices to the left. You want to write about Thomas's vacations? Fine. Supreme Court justice is a public figure. The real story here is a boring one. Then again, The decades-long smearing of Thomas is unprecedented in modern American history, and with renewed efforts to delegitimize any court bound to constitutional limits, which is what all this is really about, it's only going to get worse, folks. It's only going to get worse. A bit of that was the topic of my monologue. If you missed it in the first hour, you can check and get all those things at 960thepatriot.com. For free. By the way, I guess I should make a bit of a public service announcement. I got about the 1,000th email last night asking what that song is at the end of every hour. People try and get it and search for it and can't find it. I guess they like it. It's an earwormer. Just keeps ringing in their head. It's Dolly Parton's version of a Neil Diamond song called "Brothers Brother Loves Travelin' Salvation Show. It's a Dolly Parton version of a Neil Diamond song. Brother Loves Travelin' Salvation Show. That's what it is. I don't know if she ever recorded it. We got it from a live performance, I think, didn't we, off YouTube or something like that or whatever video service we use. So for those of you that keep asking, what is that? And I get a lot of it. <laughs> I love getting questions about our music. But as a preemptive effort to help solve the question, or give the answer before it's asked. That's what it is. Brother Love's Traveling Salvation Show. And it's, uh, some people say it's a, they misinterpret it as a mockery of C.C. Riders, it's not. Or small churches, it's not. It's a celebration of them. In fact, if you watch the video of Dolly Parton introducing the song, that's her explanation of the kind of, Town she grew up in, the kind of church she grew up in, the kind of um, revival she grew up in. And she kind of puts it together with a bunch of other great gospel type songs. Uh, anyway, a lot of fun. Dolly Parton. How can you criticize Dolly Parton and Neil Diamond? I mean, okay, some people don't like Neil Diamond, but who doesn't like Dolly Parton? Sonny and Cher do a version of it too. And I'm not going to play it because. Um, my producer, Bill, uh, will stop working with me if I ever do anything with Sonny and Cher. That's why we don't play very much Sonny and Cher, except on Groundhog Day. He gives me he gives me a little permission on Groundhog Day. <laughs> Owen Anderson, our professor at ASU, friend of the show, he's become a quick friend of this show and a good friend of this show. Um, based on him being just one of three professors who was willing to stand up for the free speech rights of Dennis Prager when he was invited to ASU. He's been battling against them on free speech issues, academic freedom, and he's uh, been working with uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, in trying to hold uh, his his department at ASU up to First Amendment norms. He's going to join us when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's a delight to welcome back to the show. um, I was going to say an old friend. He's a good friend, and he's a new friend, a friendship forged in, uh, in, in the academic, intellectual, and political battles we find ourselves in. He is Dr. Owen Anderson, a professor at the School of Humanities at ASU, the School of Humanities, Arts, and Cultural Studies. Amongst his books are the Declaration of Independence and God and... The natural moral law, Professor Anderson. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us.
2: It's always a joy to be with you. Thank you so much for having me, Seth.
1: I appreciate and it. No, I'm,
2: yep. I'm supposed to say now, all opinions expressed yep. here are my own.
1: Very good. Very good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it should be obvious, but uh, I work at ASU, but this is my my own private opinions right now.
1: Fair enough. Okay. That having been said, a lot lot could be said about that. But that having been said, you've been um. Ever since, and maybe even a little before, ever since the uh, contretemps at ASU when uh, a group invited Dennis Prager to speak and a majority of faculty members uh, opposed it, you've you've you stood up not only for the, his right and others to speak there. You and only a couple others. Um, you've also been kind of caught in the um, caught up in the uh, what shall we call it the uh, the trip wires of uh, some new new plans at ASU having to do with diversity equity and inclusion requirements i say diversity equity and inclusion i guess there's actually a new letter to it shows you how yep. outdated i am and how fast this stuff works it's now yep. not just dei <laughs> anyone who says dei is old fashioned they've they've added right. another letter there's dei b diversity equity inclusion and Belonging—we're going to find out what that all means. But give us an update on where things are on all this. What what's going on in your department yeah, well, or in your school? One of the
2: things, one of the things I've been doing over on my Substack is just keeping track of how many far left talks are given at ASU since the faculty was so worried about one talk, which really wasn't even conservative. It was about how anyone can be happy, right? Uh, right. So I've been I've been just keeping track. Look at how many are on the other side. It's not even anywhere close to being equal, but. Something else that's been going on is that my college wants to change its bylaws. I'm at New College at Mm -hmm. ASU West. Mm -hmm. And so they're proposing changes relating to the bylaws. What it explicitly says is to add in DEIB, which, as you said, is diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and also anti-racist and decolonize the curriculum philosophy. Okay. So these are very specific things. In other words... It'd be like saying, you have to agree with Plato to work here. Okay. Like something super specific. Yeah. Um, and, and it goes way beyond just saying, hey, we welcome all views to be discussed.
1: Boy, I wonder if for someone who's written on the natural moral law and the Declaration of Independence, as much as you have, how well you're going to fare when it comes to issues of colonization.
2: Well, that's the thing is, it's decolonizing is a specific philosophy. Yes, of so, course it is. <laughs> same, same with anti-racism. Right. All of us are anti-racist. That's... That's great. We're all against discrimination. But both of those mean that you subscribe specifically to a neo-Marxist mm-hmm. philosophy of the world and how society works.
1: To get this and straight, so, we're not talking about rules for the admissions department. We're talking about rules for what's taught in the classroom.
2: Right. right correct. And yeah. how and how we're how we as professors are evaluated and how we're promoted. Mm-hmm. So every year we have annual evaluations and will have to answer a question along the lines of, how well have you decolonized your curriculum this year?
1: <laughs> Do you know what it means to decolonize your curriculum?
2: Well, the thing is, you know, this relates really well to what you said at the top of the hour, or, or the beginning of the show, I should yeah. say, uh, about meaninglessness.
1: Yes, yes. And I think there explicit. you were talking about <laughs> yeah.
2: diversity. Yeah. And, and, yeah, you know what? They don't—you'd they don't, have to spell it out. What is decolonizing exactly? What is anti-racist philosophy? Now, when you look into the books and thinkers that are promoting it right now— Again, you'll find out that that's just neo-Marxist philosophy about race and class conflict.
1: I want to I want to so get I, into all of this. This is a good setup. It's a short segment. We have a longer one coming up. Yep. Let me, if if that's okay with you, I'm going to take this quick Absolutely. commercial break, uh, Professor Anderson, and uh, we'll come back on all of this. And I also am going to need you to summon all your training in uh, history and philosophy to explain to me what this new letter uh, in the acronym yep. of DEIB, this belonging, means. I'm going to need you to explain that to. Uh, Yep. To me, I'm, I'm I'm I was just catching up on what DEI meant. Now I have to understand what belonging means too. Professor Owen Anderson, <laughs> he'll he'll be right back with us. Check out his uh, Substack uh, columns or follow him on Twitter. Great, just great, informative stuff and and a, a, a real f- breath of fresh air and fresh thinking in the academy. Uh, Doctor Owen He and I will be right back. Welcome back to The Seth Leibson Show. Professor Owen Anderson is a professor at the School of Humanities, Arts, and Cultural Studies at ASU. Uh, He has a great Substack uh, series of columns uh, you should go to, drowenanderson.substack.com to follow him. Uh, Dr. Anderson, before uh, we get in – well, take it wherever you want. I was going to ask you basically three questions. How how the new rules on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging – are to apply. Is there anything to be done about it, and what is this thing belonging? Take it in any order you want.
2: Yeah, yeah. Those are great questions. So they'll apply in our bylaws to evaluating professors and their course content okay. in their annual reviews or for promotion. Which well, means essentially every professor. Is there a committee
1: to showing a, a committee of teachers that will look into that, right. or is it yes, exactly. student ratings
2: There'll be a committee that looks over your – you. We, we all do annual reviews, Yeah. and there's a committee that looks those over, and okay. the standards that they'll be using to evaluate them yeah. will be coming out of this idea that you have to prove you've been decolonizing your curriculum <laughs> and you've been using DEIB in your classroom. Did you ever and, think you
1: were colonizing your curriculum in the first place?
2: Well, no. The thing uh, okay. is <laughs> – I mean I, I, I would be happy to – to argue, I'm probably top three philosophers at ASU yeah. that offer world philosophies. I mean, I cover every philosophy yeah. I can. I yeah. I love studying uh, the world's philosophies, so I'm not limiting myself to to like modern England or something. Yes, um, but so that that's where this is curious, and that's why it connects up with what you said about meaninglessness. What exactly is this supposed to capture? What are we What are we decolonizing? So if you read those philosophies, what they're talking about is not just just an economic system; it is that, but it's also the religious system, and so it's usually being aimed at things like uh, Christianity, mm-hmm. and and that's what's in the background. So when you talk about uh, decolonizing or you talk <laughs> about diversity, you need to have some some standard. What are you diverse in relationship to? Right. Like, what view isn't? And and it's almost always as you as you get into it, you'll find out about something called intersectionality. Yeah. Which shows how there's a hub, a central piece, with all the spokes of different kinds of of uh, racism, homophobia, etc., and that central hub is almost always Christianity.
1: Right. Right. If not Christianity, the West, I assume.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the West, but but they're not worried about atheists. N-
1: no, that's a fair point. I take that yeah. point. That's a, that's a really fair point. So, so back, you're going to well, have monitors. Yeah, you you're... Be, say, you, go ahead.
2: Yeah. No. no, I was just going to say, you, could, if it, it, you know, it could be uh, the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, Judaism-Christianity... Usually not Islam, interestingly. Um, usually just Judaism Christianity. Well, Islam absurdism. never
1: colonized anything.
2: Yeah. Right. Yep. Exactly.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Help me with this, professor. It takes a professor to help me with this stuff. Belonging. What is this thing belonging?
2: Yeah. So, so the look, new word on there, and, and you're, um, I can assume you're going to have an, un, an unending list of, of letters eventually. Yeah, I'm right? so. Ones.
1: It'll be plus at some point because they'll run out
2: of letters. Yep, exactly. So you you have to you have to go beyond your being inclusive to making the, the viewpoint you're talking about feel as if they belong. You're affirming them, and so that's a that's a really short step if it isn't actually simply saying I agree with your view. Because
1: that means that their truth say, well, is more important than what you're teaching.
2: Precisely, yeah. So okay. so in other words, they belong, and if you suggest, well, but I think you're mistaken about some really important things. Well, now you've said you know something contrary to that. You've othered them. Yep, we yep. need a new dictionary. Right. <laughs> we need a, well, Yeah, okay. That's exactly what happens. It, it, yeah, these words come to have new meanings and, um, and inside meanings. Because, look, ASU is already we, – we have these three values, and one of them is access. And we already provide great access. and And it's already illegal at the federal and state level to discriminate. Of course. You can't discriminate on race, gender, religion, ideology. That's already illegal. So the question is what are these these letters adding to that? Right. And the the only answer is well they're requiring you to believe some additional things from neo-Marxism.
1: Yes, of course. And it sounds like it's kind of some kind of academic oversight committee that has the reekings of something called McCarthyism if you ask me. It sounds like
2: Well, that's what'll happen. Yeah, yeah is it is a, a kind of oral, or a sort of like a French revolutionary yeah. Ah, council of twelve that will yes. look and decide who who counts and who doesn't count is yes, actually right. revolutionary.
1: That's right. That's right. Now, uh, can, uh, is this the kind of thing that an organization like FIRE Foundation for Individual Rights and Education can get involved in or help you with? Yeah. Or? Okay.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I'm gonna. I've been in touch with them. They've been extremely helpful, and I'll I'll keep you updated as as you know they they write letter about this saying. You know, this is contrary to academic or intellectual freedom mm-hmm. that the university is supposed to represent. Um, we're not supposed to require belief commitments. It's it's certainly fine to say you have to agree that discrimination is wrong. Absolutely, that's as I said, federal Who law. Who doesn't? Yeah. But to go beyond that, in this, you're you're asking to subscribe to something. And I think, I mean, I think this is what we saw in that recent uh, school board meeting in Washington Elementary School. Right. District, right. Where I think. The board member said the quiet words out loud,
1: yeah that's and right. and
2: and what we really saw was you know Christians aren't welcome don't apply to work here well
1: i I would imagine that that would have a spe- uh, an, a special uh, concern for someone as yourself right I mean uh, y- yeah. y- you affiliate with seminaries as well yep. and and I would assume that you like. Any professor I've ever known who sometimes assigns some of their own writings to the class—I mean, they signed up for your class; they're taking your class. I assume some of your writings are permanent. I'm just wondering if there's going to be some kind of some kind of new committee to go through all the kinds of writings that are being assigned, uh, even former writings that you may have written, oh, say, in 2015 oh, yeah. or 2013. That's a
2: great point. Is is evaluating? You know, the way we're seeing with some classics recently, yeah. having. Having evaluations to see was this properly right. anti-racist decolonizing right. or not?
1: Right, right.
2: You know, so yeah, that, that's that's the thing is I think. And I if mean, it, think if
1: it gets through, here's how I think they're going to do it. Or they would do it, Doctor. Just hear me out here. If they yep. allow those writings to obtain, they're going to force you to have a contrary point of view against something you wrote. That's my guess. Yeah,
2: yeah. You could do you could do that, or you have to already get permission to use your own books because there can't be any sense that you're like, you're like using a classroom to sell books.
1: I understand that, yeah. Um, okay. That
2: almost always, that almost, you're almost always allowed to. Yeah. No one's making money out of Right, the students right. In, in a, a small humanities class, right. but but they could easily, you know, make that a lot harder to say, well, I'm not sure you want to use that one. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, in my, in my books, I, I'm arguing for things like, uh, you know, taking the Declaration of Independence and saying, you know, there's good reasons to think it's self-evident God exists, that everybody can know God. Or that there and is and a the self-evident truth. I
1: mean, those are words yeah. in the Declaration of Independence, aren't they? Yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah, exactly. So so I'm arguing for that case and in that way I, I'm suggesting this is this is a really good document. Uh one of the top political documents I think. And that's not a good that's not, you know, the Declaration of Independence, you're not supposed to say that. <laughs>
1: Gosh, Professor. Um, by the way, what is what? Uh, I was just looking over at your Substack uh, series. I, I, I'm glad you're taking yeah. on Ibram Kendi. I'm glad you're also this another activist gives a talk. This is great. I, I mean, this is this is fantastic. The kind well, of well, will
2: just talk after talk, and no yeah. no faculty is opposing Ibram Kendi, but you can find him saying the kind of incendiary things they accuse Dennis Prager of.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. He said color blindness is racism.
2: Yeah, and he said he want, there's good discrimination, which is what he wants.
1: Oh, the only answer to past discrimination is current discrimination, and the only answer to current discrimination is future discrimination. You wouldn't say anything so bigoted as that ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: well, well, because as I said, the state and federal law says no discrimination. That's
1: exactly right. Kendi falls afoul of, title, uh, of all, the, all, all the civil rights titles affecting higher education. Dr. Anderson, it's always good. Keep us informed, and may you have a uh, prayerful uh, Good Friday.
2: Well, thank you for having me on, and yeah, same to you, thank you. You betcha, absolutely. We'll be in
1: touch. I'm Seth Leibson. I'll be right back. I think it's true what Herman Melville says in Moby Dick, that the universal thump does get passed around. The universal thump gets passed around. We'll all, we'll all take a hit at some point in our lives, sometimes a few. When it comes to media personalities or political activists, it's a question of they'll get the thump, but will they get the bump? That is to say, will they get the media attention for that thump? How many of you know, for example, that Don Lemon over at CNN – was just um, put through a huge expose at Variety Magazine for decades of misogyny, not just his criticism of Nikki Haley. It'll be interesting to see how much publicity this gets. Here's the headline from Variety. You can get it online at Variety.com. Don Lemon's misogyny at CNN exposed. Malicious texts, mocking female coworkers, and diva like. Behavior. You want just the first paragraph? Back in 2008, Don Lemon was co-anchoring CNN's Live from Weekday show with Kira Phillips. It's a female. A gig he landed after he arrived at the network two years prior from local news in Chicago. For months, tensions between the pair kept mounting. On more than one occasion, a live from producer and newsroom supervisor had to pull Lemon off the air during a commercial break because of the anchor's provocative antics. Not unlike his recent declaration that fifty-one-year-old Nikki Haley isn't a viable presidential candidate because she isn't in her prime, amid the charged atmosphere, sources say Lemon disrespected colleagues like Nancy Grace and Soledad O'Brien, and roughly, uh, and roughly and, and and attested to by over thirty staffers, and then a long line of other examples uh, throughout the story. Be interesting to see how much coverage this gets. Or if uh, CNN plans to do a thing about it. I'm Seth Leibson. Don't go away. A lot more coming right up.